Oh, can you give a round of applause for Lex and just saying gratitude, just a way to express gratitude and all that good stuff. Um, also, uh, shout out to Ellie, who's playing keyboard for the first time today. Uh, and who also, if you didn't know, won Teacher of the Year. So uh, you already said a big whoop for Luis, uh, but it's Luis' birthday, so do it again. All right, all right. I'm satisfied with bringing embarrassment at this point. My fatherly duties are done today. Uh, my children, thank you. So, uh, awesome. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here. That's, uh, most of y'all know me, but uh, for anyone watching online later or listening in later, what I uh, would love to start with today is, is pretty simple. Uh, by the way, this is our time in the Word. We're just going to go to the Bible, try to draw out some ideas and, and apply them to our lives. We believe God can speak to us in this time, and so I want to encourage you, don't kind of be like, all right, here's my break. Uh, instead, like kind of press in, like really invest in this time. Uh, and I know I only say that today because I was standing in the back and I was like listening to Lex and getting the, getting the announcements. And she was like, all right, I'm going to pray for the sermon. I was like, I kind of forgot I was preaching. I was just like so in, I was engaged with Lex up here doing her thing. And I kind of forgot what was going on. And so I want to encourage you, if you found yourself in a similar situation, snap out of it. All right. And, uh, and focus for a little bit. Let me start a timer. So uh, I want to start today with a simple question, which is what would keep you going on a desert island? That's my question. What would keep you going on a desert island, right? Let's say you're going full castaway, all right? What was, uh, what was the, the, the ball's name in castaway? <laughs> okay. Oh, man, I was going to say something crazy. I was going to diss y'all about knowing the Bible as well, but I'm not going to do it. I kind of just did, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but if you're going full Wilson castaway, you are Chuck and you are a FedEx analyst, and you got on a plane, and you are on a desert island now, and, and you have no foreseeable path to interact with humanity again, what keeps you going? Give me, get, I'm, I'm not asking rhetorically. I'm, I want to hear you. What, clean water. Okay, that's very practical. On a motivational level, let's say, all right, like what, what is the motivation behind you even going to look for water? Right? We need water. We need food. Hopefully you got some clothing that lasts you a little bit. Uh, but what is the motivation of your, your heart behind? Like, I'm going to stick this out. I'm going to spend eight years on this island until a random boat picks me up. I'm going to keep going. What's driving you? Getting home. What's at home? Family. Okay, what else? I mean, that doesn't have to be the only one. Faith. Okay, that's great. I love that. I'll be honest. I agree with those more than what I'm about to say. But Arsenal Football Club's playing right now. I'd really want to know how they were doing if I was on a desert. I'd be like, man, what's happening? I want to know what they're doing right now. They're playing as we speak. I want to know what they're doing right now. I'm very tempted to go to my pocket and check it. Um, what else? Anybody else? Food? That's fair. Uh, not just food isn't survival. Food isn't like I want to get back and enjoy like a really great meal. Like I want to enjoy Patrick Pagel's broccoli, bacon, potato, egg tacos. Um, if you don't know, yeah, so I just, that was Someone boo that man's broccoli? You don't like broccoli. Um, look, here, here's why I ask you that. Uh, in the famed Tom Hank movie, Castaway, the, the reason I'm reviewing it is really because on the journey in life, right, when things get difficult, I think a very similar question has to be confronted. Like, we have to confront a very similar question, which is like, what is motivating us? Now, you may not be stranded on a desert island. I pray that you're never stranded on a desert island. I really... I really don't want that for you, but when times are difficult, right, when you are discouraged, when life has beat you up, 
when there's social pressures that feel like they're overwhelming you, and when your own failures seem to be right in front of your face, and it seems like you just cannot get them to go away, in those moments and in those seasons on the journey of life, and everyone will have them, you will have them, I have them, everyone in here has them, everyone will be, no one is excluded, everyone will partake. When those moments come, whether they are in the past, now, or in the future, what do you cling to? And here's the thing, I believe that's the question at the heart of the book of Hebrews. When things get hard, whatever that looks like in your life, whatever that has looked like, in addition, whatever that will look like, right, what do you cling to? Today we're starting a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, actually, and, and where the author, right, in the book, what his main focus is, is, he takes time to argue that in moments of difficulty, in moments of discouragement, in moments of temptation, in moments of doubt, it's Jesus that is most worthy to be clung onto. That it is Jesus that is most worthy to be clung onto. It's Jesus that on the cross goes infinitely far, uh, in fact, infinitely farther than any other option that we can cling to. But he goes infinitely farther than any other option, but what he does in his going is that he joins us, he provides the comfort uh, that we desire to turn to. I mean, like he, he provides comfort, he provides redemption, he provides power and strength better and above uh, anything else that we could possibly turn to, anything else we could possibly think we find security in. And so what we want to do is today, we're just going to begin our time in Hebrews by starting with uh, four of the most important verses in the entire Bible. I got to be honest, um, it's the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. And so what I want to do is I just want to begin today by reading those together. Uh, and then I want to, in this time, invite you to stand with me out of respect for God's word. These are words that we, many of us in here, believe are given to us by God. And so out of respect, we're going to read them and stand together. At the end, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to invite you to simply respond with thanks be to God. That's kind of like something that connects us to the historical life of the church. People have been doing that for hundreds of years, and so we're going to do that, and then from there we'll jump in. And so Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 reads like this. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you have a seat. So uh, as we get started, right, what's happening here? Lots of stuff going on, lots of big words, if I'm being honest. And again, extraordinarily important words. And before we even get to what's happening, let me just go ahead and say up front, these are four of the most influential and important verses in the entirety of the Bible. As a result, people have written books about them. They've done conferences over them. They have spent a lot of time, theologians, professors, all kinds of people studying these words. And I want to make sure you know that if you have some type of a favorite point that's been made about these four verses as you've consumed some of that content. There is an extraordinarily high chance that I am not going to say that point today. And it's not for a lack of trying or a lack of interest. I'm interested in these verses. I consume them diligently. These four verses were absolutely central uh, to a Trinity class that I took in seminary. And I fell in love with these verses even more than I was before in that class. However, 
It's not because I'm not interested or I don't want to try, but rather because I want to read these verses in context. I want to read them in what's happening. In other words, while these are incredible words, right, while they're amazing, they were always meant to teach us something about Jesus. They were always meant to show us who God is, what the information is meant to do in our hearts as we understand it, right? That can only be understood when we see why the author was saying these things in the first place, right? We, we may gain a lot of knowledge from them, but what the author wants to accomplish can only be understood when we read it in the context of the Bible. As an example, was he teaching um, seminary students and future preachers the ins and outs of Jesus, making sure they didn't jack up talking about Jesus as they went out to preach in public? That, if that's the case, then he's doing a really good job, to be honest. Like, he's being very clear about who Jesus is, and, and he's leaving, not leaving a lot of room for misunderstanding who Jesus is. However, is he talking in a Sunday school class, right, with like a, a humble, and you know this vision, right? Sunday school is like the old church building, and, and there's like a humble 55-year-old couple sitting in the front row, and this guy's going off talking about the radiance of the glory of God and the exact expression of his nature, and, and that beautiful couple is looking at each other and going, what is this guy talking about? Right? Like, is that the setting that the author of Hebrews is speaking into? Or is he making some type of apologetic argument saying how important it is, speaking to a non-believer, maybe someone that doesn't believe in God at all, and telling them, man, this is who Jesus is. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our praise. Maybe that's what he's doing. Actually, though, these verses have been used in, in each of those settings. They have been. I've been a part of all three of those settings as either a student or the speaker. They've been involved. I mean, these verses have been used in each one of those. However, while they're good for that, that's not what the author was doing here in this moment, though. That's not what he was doing. He wasn't teaching a seminary class. He wasn't teaching a Sunday school class. He wasn't speaking to a non-believer. Most scholars believe that the author, who we don't know, that the author, he or her, was writing to Hebrew Christians across his or her region. We don't know exactly even where the, the letter is directed with certainty, but that he was writing to Hebrew Christians across his or her region who were discouraged, hurting, and feeling the pressure of the world around them to leave our faith or to add on to our faith. And, and this is important to note. This is, I mean, this is, I want to start here, and I haven't got into the text yet. But I want to start here because, because here's what this tells us. Oftentimes we think big theological ideas, big theological ideas, words and sentences that we don't fully understand, that we have to look up, that we have to take time to figure out. We think that those ideas are for super Christians. They're for pastors, right? They're, they're for preachers. Or maybe they're for fanatics who, who are just so obsessed with this stuff. But but the simplicity of things is, is all I really need or, or I need some, some unique type of comfort that's just a hug or an embrace. But there's the thing. According to what Hebrews author is doing, they're also for those of us that are discouraged. Big theological ideas are also for those of us that feel like we'll never get out of a cycle of failure because it always seems to happen to us over and over and over again. Big theological ideas are for those of us that feel like we haven't lived up to our potential and that we've disappointed person after person, parent after parent, mentor after mentor, and feel like we can't just get out of a rut. Big theological ideas are for those of us that feel like we're in a rut, 
that feel like we've tried various ways to get out of situations and over and over again feel like we can't. We feel discouraged and hurt and disappointed in our lives. Therefore, those of us that feel like we can't get ahead, like we were born in situations that automatically put us behind the eight ball, and we can't, for the life of us, seem to get around that eight ball and get moving in a positive direction because whether it's my own propensities, my own habits, my own doings, or whether it's just the circumstances and environment that I find myself in, I feel like I'm just stuck. That for those of us that feel like we've been Christian for so long, and to be quite honest, we're just getting bored. And we're worried that our hearts just aren't in this idea of faith anymore. Right? Big theological ideas are for each one of us that feels burdened, that's been disappointed, that feels discouraged, that wrestles with doubt, that wrestles with discontentment. Big theological ideas are for us. They're not just for professional Christians. And here's the thing, if you're in any of these places or anywhere in between, insert the source of your discouragement, insert the source of your frustration, insert the, insert the source of your doubt, right? If you're in any one of those places or anywhere in between, these words may have been written to ancient Israelites 2,000 years ago, but the contents of them and the intent of them was written for you that these big theological ideas in the midst of our doubt and discouragement and frustration and, and just despair, that these words, these big theological ideas today were written for you. And that brings me to what I really want to be really like the first formal point of the day, which is that there are times where the comfort, of our, the comfort our hearts need is the truth of who God is. There are times where the comfort our hearts need is simply the truth of who God is. And hear me, I know that's not sexy. That's not. That's old school. That's like that old preacher just declaring who God is over you and being like, man, be encouraged. And it's not sexy. It doesn't have that. It's not steeped in the modern excitement of things like counseling and self-discovery and figuring out all the backstory of our hearts and, and then from there understanding how we grow. And hear me, there's a place for those things. I'm an advocate of those things. You hear me talk about those things a lot. They're important. But this ain't, this ain't that idea today. There are times where our hearts are in need of a comfort, and that comfort is the knowledge of who God is. And that comfort, that knowledge, the beauty of the vision of who he is may just be what our hearts need to be anchored down, encouraged, and strengthened to endure and to get through the most difficult and challenging moments of your life. So, with that being understood, who is the God that the author of Hebrews wants us to be reminded of? Right, if he helps, if he's seeing the discouragement, the doubt, the challenge, and the heart of the people that he's writing to, and he knows what I want for you today is to be reminded of who God is, have a knowledge of who he is, have a vision of his beauty and his power and his glory, right? If that's who he wants us to see, then what is he painting? What is he going to give to us? And you don't got to go far in order to really get into that, to be quite frank. Most scholars believe that the author of Hebrews was writing to a Hebrew or Israelite audience, people who were Christians but had been Jewish in the past, because he does not take any time to preface anything whatsoever. It is like just the most dense theological information from the absolute jump. It'd be like if Castaway started on the island. That's what it feels like when you jump into Hebrews. 
It's like, bro, who's Chuck? What is, what is a Wilson? What is like this? And you're saying, like, there's so much that I feel like I need to know because all of it is so big right away. But in the midst of that, I think that to try to help us understand a little bit of what's happening, I want to just break down four points that I think Hebrews can be summarized in. And these aren't, trust me, this, a lot of people would say something different, organizes differently. It's not an absolute correct way, but I'm trying to take the host of theological points that are getting talked about here and try to distill them into just four ideas that you can latch on to. The first one is, is just what happens in verse 1, that God speaks through Jesus, right? God speaks through Jesus. Take a look at Hebrews 1, uh, 1 through 2. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Uh, now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him, that is Jesus, heir of all things and made the universe through him. And so right from the jump, theological point number one is that God speaks now and forevermore through Jesus. A couple of important things we need to know as a backdrop to this exact point. Historically, for Israelite people, they had always thought of God not as one that was far away and distant and inaccessible, but as one that was direct and intimate and involved. That before Jesus was ever a thought in their mind as the Redeemer and as the Messiah, they saw God as one who interacted with them. But in the days of old, through prophets, through signs, through, through the temple, through priests, through teaching, through the word of God, they saw God as seeing them, knowing them, and wanting to interact with them. That there was a personal aspect of who God is. And here's the thing, today in this place, you may be in here thinking that you're worshiping an idea. You've heard me say this before, that oftentimes our relationship with God is similar to the relationship we have with, in a great book. It sits on the shelf and we go, man, that's inspiring. I love that. It moves me. When I watch it, I'm just geared up. And that's how we think God interacts with us. It's oftentimes how many of us, myself included, Look at Lord of the Rings at the beginning of the year. I trust me, if I didn't have three children that were under the age of six, I would have been aggressively watching 12 straight hours of Lord of the Rings on December 31st. And I would have tried to time it where very specific parts of the movie landed at 12 a.m. And I would have stopped it and told people he actually broke his toe in that scene. <laughs> Nerds, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> But that's how we see it sometimes. That's how we see our relationship with God, as this thing, this entity, this idea that just moves us. And we engage with it, and we're moved, and we're stirred, and that's, that's what we do. But, but this verse gives us a distinctly different vision, that over the course of history, for the entire history of the world and humankind, that there has been an active personal, intimate God who sees us, understands us, that longs to communicate with us. And for so long, that communication and the vision of who that God is came through snippets. It came through a law. It came through a sacrifice. It came through a prophet. It came through a word. It came through all these little things. But now, but now, the final way God speaks to you and the final way God speaks to me is through his son. That his son has now come, and as a result is the final, absolute testimony and final word on who God is. 
man, that should be encouraging to our hearts. That, that should actually build us up. It, it means that every word of mercy and kindness that God has ever stored in his heart for centuries and millennia gone by has been uttered and found in moments like Jesus looking at a woman caught in adultery and going, who, who here judges you? Who here condemns you? I don't even. Right? It, it means that the words of Jesus that say, hey, I, the sick, I mean, the, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Behold, I have come to seek to save the lost. Right? That means that for millennia gone by, for the history of the world, that the heart of God has been tuned in to the idea of loving and caring, not just for people, and not just people broadly, but you. And we have a final say on that in the fact that Jesus himself articulates those things, that Jesus himself says those things. But why is it that Jesus, is he just like a final prophet? Or is he just the last prophet the way a, like a Muslim belief structure would be? No, because the author of Hebrews continues, the reason that the final word on God is in Jesus is because God is finally and ultimately seen in Jesus. He continues on in verse 3 and says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. Now, here's the thing. This is just the first part. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse 3, to be frank with you. However, this is really powerful. If we don't know kind of what the, what the history of this is, it can be a little challenging. The radiance of the glory of God uh, is actually kind of like that, that candle spindle thing, if y'all remember that. Y'all are looking at me like, what? Um, it's kind of that thing where you would put a candle in the middle of a sphere or a cylindrical item that may, may help in terms of envisioning it. And around the cylinder, there'd be little items cut out. And as you spin, the candle and the cylinder, it would almost like be the early stages of a movie, right? You would see the images going around on the wall, and you would kind of get this picture, this vision of what it was trying to communicate to you. And that was a, that was a comforting thing, even in days of the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans. And what, what the author of Hebrews begins to say is, hey, you, you, know, you know how like the radiant, that, that candle, it shows you a bit of its of its beauty, you see a bit of its light through these pictures in the cylinder. Jesus is like that, except for he gives you an absolutely perfect vision of that light. He's not like a snippet of the light told through one of the cylindrical cutouts. He's the light himself. He is the radiance of that light that the glory that has spoken to you and visited you through prophets and the temple and the pillar of fire that followed the Hebrew people out to protect them from Egypt and the God that parted the sea as they made their way across it and the one that held the sun in the air as they fought battles and the one that visited them and spoke to them, the one that visited Abraham and all these different things, all these different moments, the beauty of that God, while you've seen snippets of him, can be ultimately found and ultimately seen in this son. He doesn't stop there, though. He goes on. Now, he's also the expression of his nature, not just the expression, but the exact expression 
of his nature. And this would have been uh, similar to the idea of a stamp. Some of y'all know this. Some of y'all don't. For the ones that don't, listen. For the ones that do, listen. It was kind of the idea of a stamp. And that stamp would have the exact image of an emperor or king or royal person on it. And they would kind of put down the hot wax and they would stamp the exact imprint onto that wax seal. And so you wouldn't just get a reproduction of a picture. You would get the exact original photo from that stamp into the wax. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying that that's what Jesus is. When you see Jesus, you see God. He is the exact imprint of the character and the heart of God. And this is also incredible. This is also amazing. Because again, it tells us that, that for every person he picked up, for every lame beggar he saw, for every marginalized person he defended, for every moment he looked at the Pharisees and the rich putting in an amount, but seeing a widow give two cents and going, that woman has given more than all others because she gave with everything she had. Every moment where he seems to notice those that feel small, notice those that feel weak, notice those that feel distraught and have somehow feel like, like we can't get ahead. Every time Jesus himself looks at those individuals and says, I notice them, I see them, I came for them, that if Jesus did it, then we know God is doing it. That God, in the, in the infinite wisdom of his love and his passion for you, when every moment of your life comes where you are hurt and tired and achy and begging and you feel like you don't have strength to go on, you feel like you're dependent on other people like a beggar or a lame person that just can't seem to get it together and can't seem to get up off the ground, that the infinite wisdom of God has always looked at you and said, my heart longs for you. I want to raise you. I want to build you. I see you. Jesus' life tells that about an infinite God because he's the exact expression of that God's nature. That's why he's the final word about what God says. He's the final word about what God sees. He's the final word about how God acts. And that's exactly what takes us into this third point, that that yes, God speaks through Jesus, God is seen through Jesus, but God works through Jesus. At the end of verse three, uh, we're gonna call this 3B, because this is actually the middle section of the verse, but there's one more part we wanna go over in three. The author of Hebrews says this, after saying um, the exact expression of his nature, uh, the author continues sustaining all things by his powerful word. And he goes to preface the next statement after making purification for sins. Now, let me be honest with you. I took snippets of two sentences, but those two sentences communicate really important things. And that's that God speaks through Jesus. You can see God through Jesus. And that means that what God has desired to achieve in the world, he's done through Jesus. God acts through Jesus, right? He works through Jesus. And this is incredible because it, it means that the God that created everything that sees you, he sustains the world, which means he sustains you. And that Jesus is the one doing that. That in the midst of our deepest discouragements, in the midst of our deepest doubt, the one sustaining the world, and that means the one sustaining you is the very God that has been and existed for all time, that he has seen you, he's not left you alone, but in fact, in this very moment, he sustains you. 
that when discouragement and challenging times threaten your heart to be frail and to be weak, it is that very God who's existed forever and forever and forever that sustains you right now. That if you're here and you're wrestling with those moments, it is that very God who we sing to, who we talk about, who we praise, who we believe is here. It is, he, it is him that sustains you in this very moment. He sustains by his powerful word. And he purifies. This idea that your failures don't define you. Your failures don't overcome you. Your failures will never be the winning voice. Because as long as God exists and he's existed for all time and he'll exist for all time, he has the ability to purify and overcome sin. That Romans says where sin increases, God and his mercy and his grace, they increase all the more. And so know that just as he sustained you, all your days until now, just as he sustained the world from forever till now, your failures will never, will never overcome you if you are his. That his children, he purifies. He makes right. He forgives. That your mistakes and your shortcomings, they don't define you. God works through Jesus. He sustains us. He sustains all things. And he makes pure those of us that know our failures, those of us that have seen them and have offered them to God, even if you don't know. Bro, let's be real. We over here confessing. We confessing like a tenth of what's actually going on. There's all kinds of things going on in your heart where it's like, bro, if you knew what was happening in you, bro, you'd be like, dude, I'm ashamed of myself. Right? We all have those feelings at times. It's like, I didn't even know I was feeling that way. And God's grace, his purification extends to that. That even what you can't see and you can't touch, He's already seen, and he sustained you despite that, and he purifies you in that, and he loves you forever and ever. Right? God works through Jesus. And the last point is that Jesus is God. The end of verse 3 going into verse 4 says he, after making purification for sins, this is the last point, by the way. I didn't make that clear. Out of the four points, there was Jesus speak. I mean, God speaks through Jesus. God is seen through Jesus. God works through Jesus. And the last one is we're going to reverse the syntax. We're going to reverse the sentence structure here. No longer is it God does something through Jesus. Now it's Jesus is God. Because at the end, in the end of verse 3, at the beginning of verse 4, uh, the author says, He, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Literal books have been written about this exact verse. Like, it is, it is one of the most important verses in the in, entire Bible. It, it relies largely on the history of their world. I'm going to summarize that in literally 30 seconds. So you, you got questions about it, holler at me later. He sat down at the right hand was the ancient practice of kings sitting their heir at their right hand. Even the act of sitting in the ancient world was a communication that the job had been finished. As an example, the only time we see a vision of Jesus standing in uh, the New Testament after he ascends into glory is when he is, in essence, uh, appears to um, Stephen who's being killed. 
Stephen is being martyred, and he looks up and he says, I see God standing. I see Jesus standing. And it was an indication of the ancient world that to stand was to do something because the job isn't done. And in that moment, he's not reigning. Jesus is advocating. He's helping. He's being the mediator and strengthening God's people. And so, because he's in the middle of a job, Stephen views him as standing. But in this verse, related to forgiveness and purification, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He is seated. He's not standing. The job is done. He has purified. You will always be pure. Your failures will never overcome you. You will always be new. He has done a work in you, and it will never be stopped. And at the end of your days, even if you have messed up and screwed up over and over and over and over again, the might of his glory and forgiveness will continue to sustain and overcome that evil and corruption that lies in you because the goodness of God, the king, has finished his work. He is seated at the right hand of God. He's seated in equal glory, in equal kingship. He, he shares in the final work and, and in, the, in the splendor of, of, the, of God's like throne room. And so the author finishes in verse 4, so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited, that is the name of God himself, is more excellent than theirs. God speaks through Jesus. God is seen through Jesus. God works through Jesus. Jesus is God. So here's the thing. What does all this mean? Because what I just said is, in honesty, like a summarization of a, a two-minute summarization of like a seminary course on just this verse. The intent of it, we still don't know. It encourages, maybe. We also don't know how it encourages. What is it meant to do? To the seminary student, they have talking points. I come up here and talk about those things. To be quite frank with you, once I started reading the verse, I was like, I kind of remember most of this stuff. I'm equipped with it. I don't have to relearn it. I've learned it. Is it a Sunday school class? Is it an apologetics? No, we said in the beginning, this is meant to encourage the discouraged, to build up the weak. How? How? How does this beautiful vision of God working through Jesus how does that encourage? How does that build up the one who's frail and the one who's hurting? God can do that any way he wants to. But I know that what I see here, and I think the gist of what's happening, is that the author of Hebrews wants us to know through this display of this intimate connection between God and his son, that for your sake, for your sake, the infinite has become intimate. That what for years and millenniums has been so hard to understand, what has felt so, God, almost, and for good reason maybe, otherworldly, how do I relate to a pillar of fire? How do I understand the mercy through a slain lamb? How do I visit you in a house full of priests? How do I know I'm safe as I read that you're my refuge? Where do I find you? Where do these things that were once so ethereal and so hard to understand, where do they become real? 
Or is it just another book? Is it just another story? Is it just another myth? And the author of Hebrews looks at us and says, no, it's not. Because eyewitness accounts, third-party accounts, there's non-Christian ancient sources that would say, this Jesus lived. And because he lived, the author of Hebrews tells us he's the evidence that the ancient passion and love and mercy of God has existed, will exist forever and ever. That he is the infinite become intimate. That he sees you. That Jesus is the evidence that the God of all time has visited you. He's not left you. He's not abandoned you. He is the, the, the strength, the wisdom, everything that God could possibly be. He is the evidence and the, the vision of that here on earth. And his death shows the deep mercy and love that he has to see our weakness and our sin and to redeem us from it. And his resurrection is the evidence and it tells us that there's a new world coming in which none of those things will exist because he's going to have final word and final say. And because that vision is true, we now can be encouraged that there is no better, there is no more powerful, there is no more merciful, there is no more wise, there is no more caring, there is no more magical, majestic, anything that you can possibly think. There is no more and no better place to run in the midst of our discouragement and doubt and fear and stress and anger than straight into the arms of the almighty God, the infinite that's become intimate to be with you. That that's the promise of God in the person of Jesus. That is the weight of your life descends onto your shoulders and your heart crumbles within you. And you are tempted to turn from God, to turn to insert your vice, insert, insert your habit, propensity, right? That in the midst of that, there is no better place to run than into the arms of the Almighty. I'm going to tell a story to finish up. And some of y'all have heard it. Some of y'all haven't. Sorry, I'm, I'm a, so that y'all don't have to hear me suck my snot back into my nose. I'm blowing. The boys had like a month-long sinus inspection. But the story is about Mookie. I don't know if y'all have. Anybody heard the story of Mookie? Not a soul. Let's go. All right. So Mookie. Um, the legend of Mookie goes like this. Mookie was a pit bull that belonged to my uncle Juan and Aunt Teresa. And here's the thing. Juan and Teresa, uh, I love them. They're like quintessentially Mexican. Like quintessentially Mexican-American. Like barbecue every weekend. There's beer in the barbecue. There's beer in the bottles. I mean, there's beer everywhere. They love the 49ers, but they're from Texas. No clue what that's about, but that is super Mexican. Um, and maybe the most Mexican thing of all, they've adopted not the path of the Chihuahua, but they've borne the mark of the pit bull. They are dedicated to the pit bull. They love the pit bulls. They breed the pit bulls, or at least they, they did. And this particular pit bull, Mookie, was their prized boy. Right? Let me tell you, let me paint a picture. Mookie had to be like 80, 90. This is a massive dog. And for 80, 90 pounds on a pit bull, when them bad boys are like here, right, they're short. 80, 90 pounds means the man was yoked. He was just, he'd walk around just, 
He was so yoked, in fact, that if you walked him, you had to wear a glove around your hand because he could pull you. And if he pulled you without the glove, there was a possibility that he would tear up your hand because his strength was just so, just a mess. That was Mookie. Now, here's the thing. When I would go to their house, Mookie was terrifying. Mookie was horrifying. I would go around, and Mookie would just sit there so incredibly just intimidating. He was scary. I got to say, I said they're Mexican. He was definitely in a chain in the backyard. But he had room to roam. He wasn't like short chain. It was a very long chain, to their credit. But if you ever went into that section of where Mookie was in their yard, it was his domain. And the thing was, he was, he was a real chill dog, but every time you got around him, especially I was, you know, 10, 11 at the time, it would be like, it would be extraordinarily scary. But he was their dog, and they loved him, and he loved them. Now, let's fast forward. Because at one point in time, I remember we were playing football out in the street with their neighbors. Went to go visit. I went with my mom. We were there visiting with my Uncle Juana and Teresa. Their sons, LT and Third, uh, my cousins, we went out into the street. We started playing football. We're playing football with other kids from the neighborhood. And you know how this goes, right? A lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, kids having fun. It's all the good stuff. And you throw a ball, and it goes too far, and you kick a ball, and it goes into someone's yard, and you're jumping a fence, and you're jumping back over. And all that's fine, and all that's good, until from around the corner, we see a rather large dog off a leash. For those of y'all that live in Dove Springs, you know this feeling. <laughs> There's lots of those dogs around. An infinite amount of those dogs around here. Dude. But he turns the corner, and he also is a, might I say, pretty yoked dog. It's pretty big. He doesn't look like, you know, there's sometimes you see a dog and you're like, oh, let me help you. This ain't that dog. <laughs> All right? There's scars and there's like, he has like a mange almost. He turns the corner and he looks at us and instantaneously he goes down and his tail tucks in and he starts getting in this position where he's ready to go at us. And all of us freeze. Right? As he assumes the position, we all do too. We're all like, we dug down and we're like, I gotta get my hips ready, dude. I gotta move. I'm staring at the situation trying to see what's going on. This ain't my hood. This is their hood. They live in Seguin, Texas. I don't know about Seguin, Texas. I know a few things, but we're gonna talk about some things. So I'm paused, I'm waiting to see their response. And I just see LT and third all of a sudden just go. And when they do that, that dog takes off, they take off. They knew that the dog was bad news. They live there, they know that dog. They start running, I look up, I start running. We're all running. We're running down the street, we're running around. The other kids go to their house because they live closer. Us, we don't know, I don't, I'm following LT and third, they're running home. I, maybe better choices could have been made. But I know that we're running toward Teresa and Juan's house. And I see where we're going, but when we get up to the driveway, in my mind I think, man, if I could just get to the door, we'll be safe. But LT and Third don't go to the door. They get into the driveway and they take a right. And they take a right into the side yard. And then they take a left into the back, into the, 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 other, the back part of the yard. And I could feel like I could hear the dog behind me just chomping at the bits. But we turn the corner and we enter into the chain circumference that belongs to Mookie. And they run. And as we run into Mookie's face, Mookie pops up. And as the dog that's chasing us comes around the corner, he is absolutely ferociously grabbed by Mookie. And Mookie starts to drag him left and drag him right. 
And the, the sound that was once filled with our screams and our terror is now, is now filled with the sounds of whimpers of the dog that wanted to harm us. And he gets out and he runs and he flees. And in the midst of that, all out of breath, all we see is Mookie standing there, proud and strong. And here's the thing. I don't know if I've ever felt more safe around Mookie than at that moment. Because with my cousins, I ran to him and I hugged him. And I petted him. You could tell he was a good dog at that point because he's like, yeah, dude, do it, do it, dude. Do it. I like that. I like that. But in that place where I recognize how infinitely, I mean, it's not for Mookie, but how strong and powerful Mookie was, it was when I connected the strength of Mookie to my safety that I learned how incredibly important and how incredibly beautiful Mookie was. It wasn't until I recognized that it was in the very things that made me almost go, gosh, you'd scare me. That it was in those very things that I recognized I could run to him because he's intimate, he's, he's ours. He belongs to us. And he'll protect us. And he'll save us. And when I feel the weight of fear and discouragement, my job is not even to run in the house. My job is not to find the nearest security. My job is to run to Mookie. I think similarly, when we understand the majesty of God's beauty and power, we understand what it means for the author of Hebrews to paint this picture where the infinitely powerful, who has always existed, who created all things, who sustains everything by his power, when we, when we understand what it means for that infinitely powerful to have become intimate to be with you, he becomes the exact direction that we begin to run when the weight of life and fear and discouragement and doubt begin to descend on us. He's our safe place. He's where, even when other doors seem to be open, he's where we turn. He's where we turn. He's where we go. I know that that is, well, let me just say this. That's where we're going to end. It's my prayer that, well, let me, let me say this. Let's transition like this. How, then, how do we cultivate that intimacy? Okay, this is my one application. I have no application once for you today except this. How do we cultivate that intimacy? Uh, simple for us, pretty straightforward. It's connecting with God. Connecting with God cultivates and takes that thing that seems so far and draws close to him to understand the intimacy of who he is. And right now, you hear me say that a lot. It's one of our three rhythms back there. We talk about discipleship in the context of connecting with God, growing with family, and serving the city. We say those are three rhythms that we encourage you to live out. But here's the thing. From here... My, my issue and your issue may be, well, how do I do that? And here's the thing, we've invested in trying to help you figure that out. And so today, it's live, I have a few things to finish, but I wanted to make sure that we got it up so that I could tell you about it and you could go check it out almost right away. Today, uh, if you go to our website and you go to resources in the top menu and you go down to discipleship rhythms, uh, we've made something on here that's actually really cool. Uh, if you click on that, you'll go to the discipleship rhythms of connect with God, grow with family, and serve the city. In each one of them, there will be a daily rhythm, a weekly rhythm, and a monthly rhythm that we want to encourage you to start participating in, one of them. As an example, I didn't take screenshots of this part, sorry. But if you cl click down on daily rhythms with connect with God, you'll end up finding something that just says connect with him through prayer. From there, you'll find a link that takes you to a prayer rhythm of morning, midday, and evening prayers where we explain what that is and why we do it. From there, you can click a morning prayer, a midday prayer, or an evening prayer that actually guides you through that prayer time. There's also links to things like the Dwell Bible app 
where one of our daily ways, we, one of our daily rhythms we connect with God is through Scripture. And hear me, we've invested in that for you. I know that for some of us, getting a book and reading it with, the, with that ancient feel of paper in your hands is really thrilling. I know for some of you, you have zero desire to do that, okay? That's okay. We even have invested into like a church-wide subscription where you can download this app called the Dwell Bible app. It's an incredible audible uh, or audio Bible listening app. And we pay for that on a church-wide level because we want you to have it. It's, it's actually, you usually have to pay a subscription for it, but we pay that subscription so that if you're a member or you call Refuge Home, you let us know you want it and you get access to it, right? We're investing into the idea of you actually developing your intimacy with God, intimacy with God, because I deeply believe, I am convinced, and I want you to be convinced that he is actually the security that we long for. That when I ask you, what keeps you? What motivates you? What do you cling to in the midst of that incredibly scary moment in your life where you go into the dark night of the soul, that you have spent time with him, that the infinite has become intimate to you, and that you feel comfortable running into the circumference of him and being embraced by him to embrace his protection and his safety? That doesn't happen until we recognize that he's ours, he's intimate, he's mine. And that doesn't come without spending time with him. So we're investing in that space for you. So there's weekly rhythms, there's monthly rhythms, and they're across the board. It's actually is optimized for your phone. You don't have to just go to the website. If you go to refugeaustin.com on your mobile device, click on resources and click on discipleship rhythm. We worked hard to make sure this section was optimized so that you could take this on the go, so that you, while you're at work, can participate in a midday prayer, where the opening prayer is 120 seconds of just shutting up and breathing. Sorry, button, don't say or say that. Um, earmuffs, earmuffs. Um, right, so you can take 120 seconds, breathe, set your mind on the Lord, and reset into setting your mind and heart on him. I, we want this for you. Let me say that I desperately want this for you. I want you to feel deeply connected to God. And anything I can do more to help you do that, let me know. Because it's my desire that in the midst of the difficult moments of your life, you would run to him. That you would find safety in him. That as the psalmists say, that, that God would be truly a, a refuge and strength in the midst of your trouble. That's where we're going, I think, for a lot of the rest of this time. But we're going to explore exactly how that looks and what that looks like and various elements of who Jesus is. But this is the starting point for Hebrews. It just gets more after this. Um, I, I, and from my personal opinion, we see even more beauty even more motivation to see him as ours and to see the beauty of his grace and mercy. And I'm excited about that, and I hope you are too. But for today, let's take some time to pray. Let's close out, and let's continue on in, in worship. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, thank you that as we evaluate what our heart clings to in the midst of trouble, that no matter the, the different stressors that, that arrive in our lives, whether they're ruts or relational frustration, or whether they are our own failures, or whether the various things that confront us and tend to cause us to be discouraged, or cause us to doubt, or cause us to feel down, or cause us to feel vulnerable. Father, thank you that, that the infinite has become intimate for us, that what was once a pillar of fire and miracles that felt so intangible has now become so personal, that we see you in the world at work coming to us, that we see you on the cross in passion and in compassion and in mercy. We see you resurrected uh, and victorious over our sins and our failures. We see these things as beautiful testimonies that you are for us and you have joined yourself to us. 
And so help us, help us to continually grow in our intimacy with you, that you would be the place of refuge that we run to in the midst of our deepest and darkest and most challenging moments. I love you. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.